Well, good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible and you want to open it, we will be, as Wade just read, in Psalm 29. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about my time in a cult. And uh, so it was a pretty popular uh, cult. There were about uh, 50,000 or so other members. It uh, was called Texas A&M University. I'm an Aggie, as are some other cult members in here. Uh, and so I'm an Aggie, which means that I am unjustifiably optimistic and perpetually disappointed. That's my life. Why do I say that A&M is like a uh, cult? That's a great question. Let me give you a few marks that kind of show that. First, the way that we talk about ourselves, we say things like, from the outside looking in, you can't understand it, but from the inside looking out, you can't explain it, which sounds like something you'd hear on a compound. Uh, In fact, we have our own language that only insiders know. Instead of saying hi or hello, we say what? Howdy. Howdy. And we say things like whoop and giggum. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, we have strange traditions like silver taps and muster and elephant walk and the 12th man and midnight yell, which is this tradition where the lights go out at Kyle Field and everybody starts kissing each other, which is strange and weird and unhygienic, but most of what happens at college is strange and unhygienic. Uh, and many of our traditions are decidedly different from other schools. We don't have cheerleaders, we have yell leaders. We don't have a fight song, we have a war hymn. Uh, It's called the Aggie War Hymn, and it is less about how much we Aggies love A&M and much more about how we Aggies hate the Longhorns, right? With lines like, so long to Texas University. By the way, we don't call it the University of Texas, we call it Texas University because it's not the University of Texas. There are lots of universities in Texas. So we sing, so long to Texas University, goodbye to the orange and the white. And we, uh, we, we say that we're going to solve varsity's horns off as we're holding, uh, kind of interlocked and we're swaying back and forth, singing these, uh, these rhythmic songs and so forth. But what's really funny to me about the, uh, the war hymn is that, is that it was written back in 1918 by a guy named uh, Pinky Wilson. This was uh, an Aggie. And why is that funny? Not just because his name is Pinky and that's kind of a funny name, but also because of what was happening at that particular time. Any of you world historians remember what was happening in 1918? Yeah, World War One. That's kind of a big deal. Maybe you've heard of uh, of that, and uh, and so it's really funny to me because Pinky Wilson was an Aggie. A and M used to be a military institution, and so he was actually in the military. In fact, he was fighting in World War One. In fact, he was actually in the trenches when he wrote the Aggie War Hymn, and I think that is really funny. He's fighting Germans. There's mustard gas, there's machine guns, there's bombs going off all around him, and he's thinking, man, I hate Texas University, (laughs) right? Those Germans, they're they're bad, but Longhorns, they're the worst, they're the real enemy. Again, we're kind of a cult. And uh, so I tell you all of that, uh, number one, to pray for all of the Aggies that you know. We probably need some sort of deconversion therapy, and we also need a new quarterback, but... I also mention this uh, because our psalm uh, today is a war hymn. 
That's kind of how we are to read, to read it. It's, uh, that's the subgenre of this particular psalm. And just like A&M's war hymn is written on, as this, uh, this assault, this intentional assault on the pride and the presumption of some school in Austin, so Psalm 29 is this full-on attack on any so-called gods who would dare oppose the true God, the Lord God of Israel. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in uh, together. I ask you first just to, uh, to pray for yourself. So maybe, uh, maybe you come in uh, distracted, maybe, you, uh, maybe you're already angry at me because you really love the Longhorns. Um, maybe uh, you've had a, a rough week, maybe you're scared. And then would you also pray for those around you, whether they're strangers or relatives or friends or whatever it might be, that the Lord would give us a collective, not just you individually, but us corporately, uh, an attentiveness and uh, a desire to heed uh, his word this morning. And then lastly, will you uh, pray for me just for boldness and faithfulness as we work through this text together. So Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true. I thank you that it's uh, inerrant. I thank you that it's uh, authoritative, that it is sufficient. Um, And uh, and so I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, help us because we confess we can do nothing, including understand or uh, hear or heed your word this morning apart from uh, your grace. Uh, but we pray with expectation because you're a good father who gives good gifts. You've given us your son, you've given us your spirit, you've given us scripture, and so we pray that you'd meet with us uh, today. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Let's begin uh, at the very beginning of Psalm 29. We'll start with the title and work through verse two here. The title is a Psalm of David. We've talked about these before, that this is uh, uh, considered a part of the inspired text. And it goes on from there and it says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So I want to begin by pointing out something that you actually don't see here. I don't know uh, why it didn't make it up into the screen, but if you're looking at a Bible uh, hardcover or on your uh, uh, iPhone or something like that, you'll probably notice that Lord there is in all capital letters, all right? So in the ESV, that is the translator's way of letting you know that the author has not used the traditional Hebrew word Adonai for Lord, the, the word that would be used uh, of uh, even, um, uh, even human lords or masters or like the stormtroopers might refer to Lord Vader or something like that. So that's not what's going on here in this text. Uh, whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters, as it is in this text, all of the places that you see Lord, even though it's not uh, correct up on the screen, all the places you see Lord are in all capitals if you are reading the ESV. And the reason is because that's the translator's way of letting you know that the author has not used Adonai, but instead has used the divine name for God, what is called the tetragrammaton, which means four letters, Y-H-W-H, Y-H-W-H. And this is the divine covenantal name for God. So let's look at Exodus 3, Exodus 3, 
15, Moses is here uh, talking to God and Moses said, if I go to the people, if I go to my people, uh, if I go to Egypt and I tell them you should worship and serve God and they ask, what God are you talking about? Who should I tell them? And, uh, and so this is God's response. God also said to Moses, say this, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, that is the Tetragrammaton there, Y-H-W-H, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So this is who this psalm is talking about, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who is progressively revealed throughout Scripture so that we now know that he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's triune, all of these sorts of things. Now, in the original Hebrew, There are no vowels. You might have noticed that. Y-H-W-H. So scholars aren't entirely uh, sure how to pronounce this divine name, this name that God gives to Moses and to the people of Israel and to us as the church. Historically, you might have heard the name Jehovah. You can kind of see that if you plug in the right vowels there with the Y-H-W, but that would have been a V sound then, and H. You get Yahovah. So that's where the word Jehovah comes from. You've probably heard that before. The problem with that is that pronunciation is really based off of a misunderstanding of the Hebrew language and some ancient manuscripts. So most scholars today think that we should actually pronounce the Tetragrammaton, God's name, these four letters, something like Yahweh. So if you ever hear Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah, they're referring to the same thing, although Yahweh is better scholarship today. Now, what about him? Well, the author calls for these heavenly beings to ascribe glory and strength to Yahweh. Before we look at what that does and doesn't mean, let's first ask the question, who are these heavenly beings? The literal Hebrew phrase there is sons of God. Sons of God, and that phrase can be used in a few different ways in Scripture. It can, be, it can refer to believers. Obviously, the Son of God could refer to the second person of the Trinity, but whenever it's plural sons of God, that could be believers. It can refer to angels. It can even refer to demons. Zach is actually going to talk about this uh, a bit more next week as his text is going to deal explicitly with heavenly beings. But given the context of this psalm, it seems likely that the author is either just referring to angels here or he means to refer to angels and demons uh, corporately. Uh, Why demons? Because as we'll see, one of the main functions of this psalm is to provide this critique of false gods. And throughout scripture, we see that false gods are empowered by demons. So the author could be commanding even the demons who are currently glorifying themselves and glorifying these false gods, these idols, to give glory to the true God. So the heavenly beings are told to ascribe glory and strength to God. Now, as we've mentioned a number of times, especially over the past couple of weeks, glory is not something that God otherwise lacks if we don't give it to him. God lacks absolutely nothing. His glory doesn't ebb and flow. You know, sometimes you wake up and you feel good. Sometimes you wake up and you don't feel good and your feelings sort of ebb and flow. God does not ebb and flow at all, right? Uh, Because he doesn't ultimately derive from us. Instead, his glory, his joy, his love, all of these things derive from himself. God exists independent of his creation and is in no way dependent upon it or reliant on it. So when it says that we or the heavenly beings or whoever is to give God glory, we shouldn't think of it as some sort of substance that God lacks. 
God's not like this great big battery that needs to be recharged every once in a while by your prayers and by your songs or whatever it might be. He's low on glory, so you need to fill him up on Sunday, and then he runs out again towards the uh, end of next week. He never runs low, again, because you don't give him anything. Even when you glorify him, you are giving him nothing. You are affecting him in no way whatsoever. Thus, when scripture says that we should ascribe glory to God or worship God, we need to understand it isn't because God needs it. He doesn't need anything. It isn't because God needs it. It's because we need it. Because we were made to worship. It's embedded into our very being. I was going to mention this quote. Zach actually mentioned it in Theological Quipping, so it flows right into it. But as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. As a result, everyone naturally, inevitably worships someone or something. That's inevitable. We can't resist it. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in looking at Psalm 115. You will either worship some so-called created being, some so-called created God, or you will worship the creator God, but you cannot not worship. And if this is true of heavenly beings, how much more is it true for us? And when this says that we are to ascribe glory and strength to Yahweh, it's not simply saying that you are to apportion, like there's a pie of glory and you give him his proper share. You apportion some to him while some goes elsewhere. As if it's saying, uh, make sure you leave a little bit for God Or give him the biggest piece, a portion of glory to God, a a bit to myself, a little bit to angels, and if I have some left over, I'll give another share to God. Instead, what this is doing is this is a radical recognition and reorientation around the idea that glory and strength really belong to no other. Which means that whatever glory you think that you possess, whatever glory that you think that you've earned somehow, you owe to him. Whatever you cling to for hope, for identity, for joy, for worth, for value, whatever you cling to apart from him, it's rubbish. This is this radical reorientation of your life around worship. All of life is worship. Not only is it a call to worship, but it's a call to war. Remember, this is a war hymn, a war not only against false gods, but also against any false notions of our own glory, of our own authority, of our own superiority, of our own goodness. This is a battle against the tide that tempts us to trust in lesser gods and lesser things for our hope and joy. So let's keep going and then we'll see how this initial call to worship turns into a call for war. Verses three through four. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. I want you to notice how saturated the text is going to be with this name, Yahweh. In fact, in this one psalm, the covenantal name of God is used 18 times. And that repetition is intentional. The author could have simply used Yahweh once or twice and then switched to a pronoun and just said his voice. His voice is powerful. His voice uh, thunders or whatever it might be, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he continuously writes out the divine name for emphasis to draw our attention there so that we might pause, so that we might linger for a second here uh, so that it might be emphasized. Now, in addition to that, 
You're also going to see a repetition of this phrase, the voice of the Lord. That's going to show up seven times, which is significant because the number seven is a number of completion in Hebrew poetry. Again, this should cause us to consider what's happening here. Why is he repeating this divine name? Why is he repeating this phrase, the voice of the Lord? So the voice of the Lord is said to be over the waters. It's powerful. It's full of majesty. It breaks the cedars. It flashes forth flames of fire. It shakes the wilderness and it makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. So what's the deal with the voice of the Lord? I want to take a quick survey as we get into that and just ask you, Who do you think has the loudest voice on staff? Go ahead and shout it out if you think you know the answer. A lot of Carls, all right? A couple of uh, of Zachs or Tims or something like that. Well, a a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, Carl was playing around with a decibel meter because that's just the kind of thing Carl does. And, uh, And so we decided to test it out, all right? This was before Jared was on staff, so he wasn't included, but he wouldn't have won anyway. But who do you think had the loudest. Raise your hand if you think Tim had the loudest voice. All right, we've got a couple. Raise your hand if you think Zach had the loudest voice. All right, a lot more of those. What about Carl? What about me? A couple of those as well. Interesting enough, I actually won, which could be because I actually have the loudest voice, or it could just be because I'm hyper-competitive and I don't like to lose anything, even this literally worthless screaming match. But imagine the loudest voice that you possibly can, all right? That's the imagery of this text raised to this exponential degree. God's voice is powerful and majestic. And that's the surface meaning of the text. But there's something more that's happening below the surface that's going to help us to see why this is a war hymn. To understand that, you need to understand something called polemics. What are polemics? It kind of sounds like an exercise or something like that. But it's not. But I want you to imagine some sort of competition, not like a screaming contest with a bunch of immature staff members, but more like some sport or maybe even like a war or something like that. In order to win this competition between these two sides, you're going to need two elements. You need defense and you need offense. Well, in religion, you have defense and you have offense. When you're talking about uh, defending the religion, that's called apologetics from the Greek word uh, apologia, which means defense. We spent much of last semester in theological equipping talking about apologetics, giving it a defense of the faith. But a good defense isn't enough to actually win. You can pitch a perfect game, but if nobody else on your team ever scores, you don't win. Or what good are 11 goalies in soccer if no one ever shoots on the opponent's goal? So you need not only this good defense, you also need uh, an offense. And when it comes to philosophy and rhetoric and so forth, going on the offense involves what's called polemics. Polemics is when you attack an opponent's argument or position. If you wonder why we spent so much time this semester in theological quibbing, pointing out the holes in various cultural arguments from a a social and political perspective, that's because we're doing the work of polemics. And Psalm 29 is polemical. That's how it's intended to be read. It's this intentional subversive attack on any false gods in defense of the true God, the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh. Now, you might not know it by looking at it, but Psalm 29 is actually saturated with allusions to various ancient Near Eastern mythologies. 
In fact, it was somewhat popular uh, a century or or, uh, a bit ago to assume that the author of Psalm 29 just took this poem, this existing Canaanite poem that was written to some Canaanite god or some Babylonian god or something like that, just took this poem, replaced the name of that god with Yahweh, and that's how we got it in Psalm 29. Now, that's certainly not what happened, but the reason that that idea was even floated about is because this passage is full of so many hints that the author is intentionally going to be using this ancient Near Eastern imagery. Nearly every element in the text is drawing from some sort of concept or picture or representation or imagery of these various ancient Near Eastern mythologies. Now, you might be put off by that. Why would an author of Scripture use pagan mythology? Well, there's two reasons that they would do so. First, because God accommodates his revelation in language that we understand, right? God communicates in ways that you and I can already understand. He he communicates in ways that rely upon existing understandings and concepts. And then he infuses those with new and deeper meanings. So that's the first reason, is God simply accommodating to our existing knowledge, and then he is kind of infusing it with greater meaning. But the second reason that he does so The second reason that the author uses this imagery of pagan mythology is for polemical purposes, as a polemic, in order to contrast Yahweh, the true God of Israel, the only true God, the creator God, with all other false gods. And in particular, this imagery seems to be aimed at Baal, right? Baal or Baal, you can actually say uh, either one, but uh, Baal or Baal was the storm god in Canaanite cultic religion. He was known as the rider of the clouds. That was kind of his nickname. And he was depicted uh, as uh, holding thunder in one hand and lightning in the other, kind of like Marvel's Thor. And in pagan mythology, you see all of these uh, references that are similar to Psalm 29. So Baal battles Yom, the god of the sea. And he lives in a house that's made with what material? With the cedars of Lebanon. And notice how this relates to Psalm 29. Yahweh is depicted as having authority over lightning and thunder and water and the sea and the cedars of Lebanon. In other words, Baal might be the god of thunder, but Yahweh breaks the cedars and shakes the entire house with his thunder. I think that's an imagery of this house of Baal that's made with cedar being broken down. I don't think it's merely talking about a cedar up on a hill that's still rooted in the ground. I think it's talking about the cedar that's used to build the house of Baal. Baal might, uh, might have fought the God of the sea, but Yahweh sets his throne on the floods. In other words, he's in an entirely different category from Baal. I don't know if you remember, but uh, maybe 25, 30 years ago or something, there were some old Michael Jordan, Mia Hamm, Gatorade commercials back in the 90s. They would compete in these various athletic contests while anything you can do, I can do better played in the, uh, the background. And that's kind of what this reminds me of. Anything some so-called God can do, Yahweh does better to an infinite degree. So you have this in, interesting phenomenon here in Psalm 29 because this, uh, the author is going to borrow all of these images, all of these stories, uh, all of these representations from pagan mythology, but he isn't merely going to borrow them. Instead, he's going to baptize them. 
He's gonna take them captive to the glory of the true God. So when it comes to how Christians should relate to and think of culture, there are aspects that we receive, there's aspects that we reject, and there's aspects that we redeem. Certain things we just receive. For instance, language, right? We don't use some strange Christian language. Sometimes we use Christianese and we use words that nobody else knows. But in general, we just speak the language of culture. We speak English if we're here in an English context. If you're in a Spanish context, you simply speak Spanish, right? Uh, So we just simply receive that aspect of culture. Same with computers or money or whatever it might be. Those are all cultural artifacts that Christians just use just like non-Christians. There's other aspects of culture that we don't receive, instead we actually reject them. For example, actual sin, pornography, adultery, uh, emperor worship, whatever it might be. So there's aspects that we receive, aspects that we reject, but there's also things that we neither receive nor reject, but instead redeem. And that's what the author is doing here in Psalm 29. Similar to the way that in the New Testament, the gospel writers are going to constantly use these comparisons between Christ and Caesar. And what's the point of doing so? The point of doing so is not to say, Jesus is just like Caesar. The point is not to point out their similarity. Instead, it's to point out their dissimilarity by saying that Christ is infinitely superior to Caesar. That all Caesar can offer is a shadow, whereas Jesus is the substance. So the fact that something is pagan in origin doesn't mean that we can't redeem it that we can't baptize it, that we can't take it captive for our purposes. For example, Christmas and Easter have pagan origins. And so maybe you've heard someone say that you shouldn't celebrate Christmas or Easter. But the fact that something has pagan origins doesn't mean that it's pagan today any more than someone saying uh, Thursday worships Thor simply because that was the original meaning of the term. As Augustine would say when it comes to pagan philosophy, those truths do not ultimately belong pagans. All truths are God's truths. And thus he calls us to plunder the Egyptians. That's the imagery that he uses there. So he gives this quote, if those who are called philosophers have said anything which is true and consistent with our faith, we must not reject it, but claim it for our own use in the knowledge that they possess it unlawfully. In other words, all truth is God's truth. And thus it doesn't belong to pagans, but to the church, to the people of God. So this is not syncretism, which is when you mix true and false religion. This is instead, what we see in Psalm 29 is instead this intentional polemical attack on paganism. When Yahweh is described as having authority over thunder and water, that doesn't mean that he is just like Baal. It means that Baal has now been stripped of every single bit of glory and authority and strength and power with the result that Yahweh is clothed in glory and Baal is left naked and ashamed. Let's keep going. Verses five through six. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. So now you see the, uh, the continued polemic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon, which was the national symbol and source of strength and pride of the nation. And he causes Sirion to skip. Sirion, by the way, is, uh, is a, another name for Mount Hermon uh, at the edge of the Syrian-Lebanese uh, border. In other words, the author takes these, uh, these representations, these images of Canaanite strength, of Canaanite pride, of Canaanite stability, and he shows how utterly unstable they actually are in response to God's authority. 
in response to God's thundering. These things that they're hoping in are utterly undone. In other words, all of those things in which they're trusting, they're not actually trustworthy, not able to withstand Yahweh's thunder, his authority, his glory. And this is a very common polemical device in Scripture, uh, this uh, showing how what you're trusting in isn't actually trustworthy. So in Isaiah, the Assyrians compare Egypt to a reed that if leaned upon will pierce the hand of the one who leans upon it. So they say, why are you trusting in Egypt? They can't actually help you. Or the Edomites who trusted in their topographical position, uh, their geographical position in the mountains, as if the mountains would somehow protect them from God's anger. Oh, they're too high. God can't get up there or something like that. So in Obadiah, the Lord says this to them, Obadiah 3 and 4, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. In fact, the entire book of Obadiah is written as a polemic, as an argument against uh, Edom. In fact, uh, whenever I was studying uh, in seminary, uh, my professor called Obadiah, Obad-Edom, and that's how I've always remembered it uh, to this day. So there you go, a little uh, pedagogical device for you. So likewise, uh, Lebanon uh, trusts in trees and mountains. They trust in these trees and mountains, but what Psalm 29 is saying is that those things will break and flee at the thundering of God. And that's a good reminder for us of the utter folly, the utter futility of false gods and false idols. Anything other than God that we trust in to give us ultimate hope and strength and identity and security, whether that's health or wealth or a job, or fame, or a spouse, or children, or whatever it might be, it's folly, it is futile, it's a shadow, it's not substance. And for God's children, he will shake the objects of our false worship, or he will break our hands until we let go of our idols and learn to rest in him and worship him. Voices seven through nine, verses seven through nine. Uh, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. So here you see the voice of the Lord that flashes forth flames of fire like lightning. And it shakes the wilderness and it strips the forest. I don't know if you've ever experienced thunder so powerful so loud that it was palpable that you could actually feel it. Maybe it rattles the windows a bit. Well, that's like what he's saying here, except raised to the highest degree. Not merely the lightning, but even the thunder shakes the wilderness and breaks the cedars and strips the forest. And also makes the deer give birth, which is either saying that it's so powerful that it causes premature birth in these skittish sort of animals or simply showing Yahweh's power over fertility which if it's doing the latter, it's yet another jab at the pagan gods who were thought to control fertility. Now, seven times we've read about the voice of the Lord, but not once has the content of that speech been listed. Notice it doesn't say what the voice of the Lord says. We just see what it does. We've seen his voice, but we've not seen any words we see the effects of the speech, but not the content. In fact, the first spoken words in this psalm are spoken in the temple as all the inhabitants cry out glory, which is this fitting bookend to how the psalm began. 
God reveals his glory, he reveals his strength so that we might worship him for his glory and for his strength. In other words, God needs nothing from us, but we need something from him. We need to recognize his glory so that we will relish that glory and thus experience joy. Because nothing else actually satisfies. Everything else is a mirage. Everything else is as impotent as Baal or some other false god, some idol that simply sits on a shelf collecting dust. As we saw a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 115, those who worship idols become like idols. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. So these false gods can speak, but all can speak in a sense, but Yahweh uh, speaks louder. And as he speaks, we cry out in, a, in response because worship is the only appropriate response to the revelation of God. Last section, verses 10 through 11. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And so earlier we talked about part of the Baal narrative. Was this account of Baal fighting Yom, the god of the sea? And within uh, various ancient Near Eastern myths, this was a pretty common sort of thing. It's called the Baal cycle or, uh, or whatever the particular god that it's talking about. You'll see this uh, common theme of fighting with the sea because in uh, various uh, ancient Near Eastern mythology, the sea was personified as chaos, And sometimes in those myths, one God would conquer the God of the sea, and then that God would then place his throne on the sea. So the author uses similar imagery by having the Lord enthroned over. Notice what the word is used there, though. Not just sea, not just ocean, but instead the flood. What's interesting is that this Hebrew word for flood is found in only one other place in all of Scripture. You actually see the English word flood in a number of places, but uh, those are other Hebrew words. There's a number of other Old Testament Hebrew words for flood that are used, but this particular word, mabul, uh, is only used in one other place. Where is that? It's in the book of Genesis and the deluge that covered the entire earth. And so I think the author is intentionally using this word that refers to this sort of worldwide universal flood to show us that this is no small localized flood, like if your kitchen was to flood. Or the river overflows. We had, our, uh, we had a, a water fountain here that uh, uh, overflowed and, and was broken uh, a few months back. And, uh, and so we were able to get that fixed. But there was a flood. There was a couple of inches of standing water in one of the hallways. But eventually we could control that. There is no way you could control this worldwide flood. And I think that's what the author is intending to point here, that this is not some localized, small, little issue. This is an overwhelming flood, a worldwide flood. And yet God rules and reigns and brings order to the chaos. Now, if you really want to understand, if you want to go a little bit below the surface and really understand the import or the impact of this imagery, you need to understand the way that water functions from a Hebrew perspective. We think of the ocean today as this fun place to frolic with your friends, right? We like the idea of a day at the beach and we go and we swim and we jump and we surf or boogie board or whatever it might be, right? We think of it as a place that we frolic with our friends. The Hebrews thought of it as a place that you die, right? Why? Because water is chaotic. It's unpredictable. It's uncontrollable. 
Not only is it uncontrollable and unpredictable, but it also can be threatening and ominous as well. Think about all of the terrors that are associated with the sea. You have the danger of drowning, but in addition to that, you have the danger of dehydration, dehydration, right? There's water all around, but you can't drink it. And the sea is full of these strange and deadly animals like sharks and box jellyfish and sea snakes and so forth. And then there are hurricanes and tsunamis. So the sea was seen as this great foe for the ancient world. This is, uh, again, why these ancient Near Eastern mythologies have these uh, cosmic struggles between various gods and the gods of the sea, yet God sits enthroned over the sea. And not just one sea, like the Dead Sea or the Mediterranean Sea or the Caspian Sea, but the entire worldwide body of water. Again, he uses this word for flood that would have this connotation of this huge universal deluge. In other words, that which is completely uncontrollable is controlled by one who is in control of all things. He who sits enthroned as king. And so having reached this crescendo in revealing the authority and glory of Yahweh, the Lord God, the psalm ends with this blessing, this benediction for God's people. In other words, God reveals himself not only for his glory, but also for your good. In fact, his glory is most manifest in doing good to his people. God's glory and your joy are not at odds. They're actually interwoven purposefully, intentionally by God. His glory is manifest in giving you strength and peace because he has conquered all of his enemies and thus all of your enemies. He has waged war against and defeated all other gods. So now we sing this war hymn of praise, knowing that no matter what chaos threatens to undo us or to overwhelm us, God is in control. Zach talked about that a little bit uh, last week as we looked at, uh, at suffering in the Psalms, that God is sovereign over the circumstances of your suffering and that this is actually the best possible news because it means your suffering isn't in vain. It's designed, it's ordained by a good God who gives good gifts and works all things according to the counsel of his will, including your suffering and pain. And not only that, Not only all of this, but as we read this psalm with this Christological lens, seeing how we're to read it through the lens of the gospel, we're reminded that God has entered into this world of chaos. He's entered into this world of uh, of, uh, unpredictability and uncontrollability in the person of his son. So we see Jesus Christ, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is the voice. He is the word of God. And he calms the sea, and he walks on the water, and he's given all authority, and he builds a new temple. And Revelation says that the Son of God defeats the beast arising from the sea and ushers in this new and better and eternal kingdom. So notice this language from Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Notice that next phrase there. We often just... Uh, skip over it and the sea was no more no more sea in other words no more chaos no more sin no more death I don't know that this is actually saying there's not going to be water or something like that the point is to say there's not going to be chaos 
There's not gonna be anything that's controlling for his control. No more sin, no more death. This is our future hope. And until then, we trust in the one who even now, right now, in the midst of a world that seems super chaotic right now, he is in control. He has all authority. So we cry out glory to our King. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God unlike all other lowercase gods who are no gods. They are created, you are creator. They are finite, you are infinite. They are limited in strength, you are omnipotent. They uh, know some things, but not all, you are omniscient. They are limited in where they are, you have no limits, you are omnipresent. You're holy, you're strong, you're glorious, you have all authority, and yet you exercise those things for the good of your people, not to destroy us. And so we're grateful. We're grateful for an opportunity this morning to dive into your word and pray that you would help us to repent where there are places in our hearts and in our lives where we exalt created things over the creator, where we worship and serve false and lesser gods and not you. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.